Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, it's a good morning. We, uh, we lost an hour. You guys feeling it? Yeah, you're feeling it? Um, I'll say not, not too many people were at first service this morning. I think they <laughs> used it as, as an opportunity maybe to skip church. Um, you guys didn't do that, but some of them might have. Um, anyway, I want to give you a quick update on, um, on kind of our Heart for the House campaign that we've been doing over the past five weeks. And I just want to just thank you guys and celebrate for a moment. Um, <clears throat> you'll see on the bottom of your little pamphlet there, kind of some numbers down there. So we have a total pledged amount of $131,776. <laughs> which is over 50% of the way there. Um, I, I'm just abs absolutely blown away. And we've already received over the past, what, five weeks, um, $52,504. Isn't that awesome? Let's give yourself a round of applause. So I just want to, I just want to thank you um, just for your, your dedication and heart for this house. And uh, I know that it's frustrating. I, the struggle is real. We've got some more videos, pothole videos coming. And I know you all have ideas. I, I get emails and, and text messages all week long with your new ideas of things that we can do for pothole videos. Some of them are a little involved, so I can't promise anything, but we're gonna, we'll have some things coming soon. So anyway, well, good morning. My name is Pastor Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we have been in a sermon series called Invisible War and essentially talking about like spiritual warfare. Uh, it's maybe a little bit different than some of the other sermon series or even if you've like studied spiritual warfare, we, we're kind of taking different like look at this invisible war that we have going on in our world today. And we've been talking about the tactics of the enemy and also the weapons of our warfare as Christians. Um, today we're going to be talking about the greatest battlefield of spiritual warfare. And you may be thinking, well, is it on Facebook? Is it uh, in, is it in like politics? Is it in my home? Because uh, is it in my marriage? What does that look like? And, and this is what I'll say, is that the greatest battlefield, and at least where everything begins, is in our minds, right up here. The battlefield that, that, that we struggle with the most is right in between our two ears. Um, the battlefield begins and uh, Satan loves to attack our minds. So I was studying this week and I found this, so bear with me. This study shows that we have about 60,000 thoughts a day. 60,000 thoughts go through your mind every day. Now, this is where it drills down and gets a little more interesting. On average, women have more thoughts than men. <laughs> Big shocker, right, ladies? Huge. Big shocker, right, guys? Yeah. Um, all kinds of ideas. Um, and out of those 60,000 thoughts, give or take, right? Out of those 60,000, they say that 80% of those are negative thoughts, 80%. So they're like, what we mean by negative thoughts, we mean like self-deprecating thoughts, fears, worries, anxieties, shame, insecurities, uh, those types of, when we say negative, that's what it means. Um, now here's, here's another interesting thing. Out of those 80% of negative thoughts, 
95% of them are uh, repetitive thoughts, which means that they're not like new thoughts. They're just the same old thought repeated over and over and over again. You understand what I'm saying? So it's, like, it's not like you have new negative thoughts. They're just the same negative thoughts that you thought yesterday, that you thought last year, that you thought last month, that you thought 10 years ago, and you just, it's on repeat. Repetitive thoughts. 95% of our negative thoughts are repetitive thoughts. So if you do the math, obviously it just essentially tells us that we think way more negatively than we do positively. And so you may be thinking the same question that I was thinking when I was reading this. How do you quantify a study like this? Like, I mean, you notice I didn't like, you know, this didn't come from Harvard or Stanford, or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm kind of like, uh, what studies are you referring to? And how do you exactly know? Here's what I will say. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, it's above my pay grade. Um, but here's what I will say is, it sounds about right, doesn't it? It sounds pretty close to reality because I may not know you personally, but I do know that, that your mind can be filled with repetitive fears and insecurities and shame and anxieties and feelings of worthlessness and, and regret that distract you in the daytime and keep you up at night. I think that that is, that's par for the course. I think it's pretty, it's pretty close because each and every single one of us have an inner critic, right? Some voice that just reminds us of what you did, what you didn't do, what you should have done, what you, what you could have done, but you didn't do. It reminds us of, your, of what your past, what you did yesterday, what you did this morning, what you did last summer, what you did 10 years ago. Just reminding you over and over and over again that inner critic that just re repeats, 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 repeats. And if you could take one thing home with you today, it would be this. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything that you think. And the greatest battle that we have, if this is true scripturally that we're going to talk about today, the greatest battle that you and I deal with happens between these two ears. Then that phrase, that idea is so... Um, so significant to our growth and to our victory in Christ that we can't just kind of brush that aside. Don't believe everything you think because what you listen to, the inner critic, dictates what you think about, which dictates your beliefs, which dictate your choices, which dictate your behaviors, right? And it all kind of starts out with the inner critic that just keeps on talking and won't shut up. I don't know if anybody can relate to this. And this isn't new, right? This isn't like groundbreaking studies. Like, my God, I didn't even know it, right? Like, we didn't read this in psychology today, and it wasn't just like, oh my God, who, who knew, right? We know this to be true. In fact, the Apostle Paul knew it to be true as well, which is why when he writes his letter to the church in Corinth, he says some words, and I want you to catch this. We're just going to read two verses today in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. And I want you to just pay attention to all of the verbiage that he uses regarding our mind, our thinking, our knowledge, and all of that stuff. Because he's talking about spiritual warfare. He says this in verse 4. The weapons that we fight with are not weapons of the world. In other words, you don't take an axe or a spear. You don't take a machine gun to this thing. 
He says, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, ways of thinking. We demolish arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then he says this, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul gets to the root of this, and he's like, look, this is your, really, your biggest threat. This is one of the most quoted scriptures about spiritual warfare that Paul kind of, you know, talks about. And essentially, he's getting to the root of it. He uses words that can be translated as argument, thoughts, reasonings, imagination, knowledge, the mind. He's like, look, the biggest battlefield that you and I deal with, if we don't get this figured out, don't even think that it's going to be her or him that you're fighting or them versus us. It's not Democrats and Republicans. It's not this. It's this reality that the battle is between these two ears. Don't believe everything that you think. That's what Paul's saying. And what we know to be true is this. The way that the devil can defeat you is by disarming you. If you're disarmed, it's very easy to beat somebody. That's why they say, never bring a knife to a gunfight, right? Like, if you're disarmed, it's this reality that he can defeat you much easier if he disarms you. Now, we're going to talk about three different ways throughout Scripture— we're going to talk about even back in, in, in Genesis chapter 3 of how Satan disarms us. The first one is this, lies. Lies. Now, here's the thing about lies. Lies are kind of funny things because um, they only have power if you believe them. Because I could like, I could sit up here, I could make up a story, I could tell you a, a lie, and it would just be stupid. Like you'd be like, that is the dumbest lie I've ever heard. You ever have somebody do that? Where you're, you're just like, they're, they're telling you a story, and you know they're a liar, 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 pants on fire. And you're just like, this is the stupidest lie. Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, come up with something better. Hold up. Let's, I'll walk out of the room. I'll come back in, and you come up with a better lie, right? Because the one you're telling me right now is just dumb. If you ever have kids lie to you, you know what I'm talking about. This, this does not line up. It doesn't match up with reality. So maybe you should maybe regather and, and think about what you're actually trying to tell me here. The power of a lie is only in the fact that we believe it and receive it. Otherwise, it's just a story. It doesn't make any sense. It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold any power over us. And I want you to understand something. Satan has been using lies to gain ground in our life even since Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. So we're going to read this together and just kind of walk down through it. He says this in Genesis 3 verse 1. You've, even if you're not a Christian, maybe, you're, maybe you, you don't know the, the Bible or anything, you've probably at least heard this story or at least have heard it referenced. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must certainly not touch it or you'll die. In verse 4, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I, I've read this, I mean, as a pastor, you know, I've read this many, many times, and every time I read it, what, something blows me away. Something strikes me, which is this. It took two sentences 
two sentences from a talking snake for Adam and Eve to be like, well, I'm just giving up on everything. I mean, God said this, but I guess maybe it's not true and it doesn't hold any water, so I'm just going to go eat the, right? Two sentences. I'm pretty sure, and maybe it's, maybe it's because I already know how this whole story plays out, but I'm pretty sure that I would have some like red flags. Something would pop up like, hmm, something's off here. As soon as a snake started talking to me, I'd be like, huh, that doesn't happen every day. Something's fishy here, right? But that's not what happens. She just starts listening, and in two sentences, they're, 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 they're just convinced of a lie. And here's, here's what I was realizing as I was just even studying this this week. If, if Adam and Eve could be convinced of a lie in two sentences by a talking snake in the middle of paradise with God, what does that say about how easily it is for us, you and I, to be duped. I mean, it looks pretty simple, pretty crazy. How, how much easier would it be for you and I not living in the Garden of Eden in paradise, walking and talking with God without a, you know, talking snake speaking to us? How much easier it is for us? And not only that, but, but Satan doesn't tempt them the way that I think that he probably should have tempted them. Because I look at today's world and I think, okay, like, if I were Satan, I would have come in and been like, I wouldn't talk about fruit from a tree. I'd be like, okay, hey, why don't, why don't I pitch you two against each other? You know, husband and wife, just, you guys just fight. Why don't I introduce heroin into the deal, right? We'll just, you, know, you get addicted to some drugs. That'll kind of get you off, right? Like, why don't, why, don't I, why don't I do some things that, you know, maybe, maybe get, you know, Adam to be abusive to, to Eve, and that'll destroy what it is that God's trying to do in here in the Garden of Eden. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll, I'll figure out how to get them kind of messed up. But I want you to see this. That is not what Satan did. To him, that was low-hanging fruit, pun intended. He was like, literally, there's a bigger target here. And I want you to see this. He saw that if he could simply get them to doubt God's word, if he could just get them to think, maybe, I don't know if God is really good or if he really has my best in mind. I don't really know if I can trust the words that he says. And if he could just get them to do that, then everything else would take care of itself. If he could just get them to doubt God's word, they would, they would sin, they would fight, their addiction would take place. All of these things would just play themselves out. Why? Because as soon as you doubt that God's word is actually God's word, as soon as you doubt that God is good, then you'll start looking for love, purpose, meaning, relation, and anything else other than God. Why? Because you can't trust him. You can't trust that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. You can't trust that he, that he is who he says that he is. You can't trust that, that he is good and that he has your best in mind. So you're going to look everywhere else that you can apart from God to find purpose and meaning, love. The problem is, is that you and I are always the last people to know that we're deceived. Other people might know and, and see it happening, but, but when you're being deceived, you're always going to be the last person to know. And so we can look at this and be like, man, you, you were talking to a snake, dude. Like a snake came into the garden, was talking to you to do something that God told you not to do. But here's what I find interesting. God shows, or Satan shows up in the garden as a snake. But you know what? He doesn't keep showing up in the garden as a snake. 
He doesn't show up as a snake throughout Scripture. It's not like, oh, when Satan shows up, I'm going to know it because he's going to be hissing and crawling on the ground like a snake. And I find, this is what I find, is when we think we know how Satan's going to show up in our life, we're waiting for it. We're like, oh, man, he's going to show up as a snake. And he doesn't show up as a snake in your life. He shows up as your sister. You, you, you're like, oh, I'm waiting for this. I, oh, is that a snake? I thought I heard that. No, he showed up as a text message from you know who. At, you, you know, you're sitting there looking around like, oh, I got this. I figured out last time he showed up as a snake, so he's going to be showing up as a snake, and if I just keep my eyes open, and then he shows up as the, you, what your boss had to say about you. Shows up in different ways. What I find is, is that Satan will show up in whatever form that he needs to to say what he needs to say to get you to believe something that isn't true. So he doesn't always show up in the way that you think. He doesn't show up in the way that you might even predict. Shows up in ways that you honestly wouldn't predict. Time and time and, and, and time again. Not as a snake. But in many forms. Even things you watch on television. And he gets you to believe something that isn't true about either who God is or who you are in Christ. And let me remind you, don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. Because Satan doesn't just tell you random lies. Like if he just told you random lies, just made up random stories, you'd be like, would you shut up, Satan? My God, you're always just yapping, just talking, making crap up. I, I'm, are you serious right now? Like, comes again, oh, I gotta tell you something else, you know? And you're like, come on. It's the stupidest lie ever, Satan. You're just making stuff up now. No, 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 no. So the best lies are the lies that have a little bit of truth in them. So if you've had experience in this, I know none of you have ever told a lie, but it, those people outside of here that don't come to church, I'm just telling you, they, they're really good at lying, and they know this. The best lies have just a little bit of truth in them so that you can't really separate truth from lie. It's like, man, I, I know that that's true, and yet I know that it's, something's off, but I can't put my finger on it. Why? Because you've married these two things together, and you're trying to separate those two things. So I trust this person, and yet what they're saying over my life, I, it, it is not something I'm, I, I, I can trust, and yet I, I, I don't know how to separate those two things out. So, which leads us to the next weapon that Satan uses and they all build on each other. The second one is shame. Shame. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6. So the woman looks at the fruit, and sees it as good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then, catch this, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, they've always been naked. This wasn't a news flash to God, right? People have been walking around buck naked ever since they, he created them, right? So this isn't like new. They're just like, oh my gosh, you're, you're, oh, me too, right? All of a sudden they realized they were naked. And so what did they do? They started sewing and crocheting. Caring crafters could have come in handy here, right? Fig leaves. We take some orders, Roxanne, for fig leaves, for some loincloths and a bra so that they could hide themselves 
they, it says the, the Bible says that they made coverings for themselves. Now, this is what I want you to see here. It begins with a, with, with a lie. It begins with a lie that was believed and received, and then it becomes a sin. They took it, ate it, but then something shifts, something changes. Once that sin happens, then shame comes in. All of a sudden now, they start sowing fig leaves and they're hiding from God. And this is what I want to really, really point out to you really quick is this, that there is a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is something that you did. You sinned. You, you ate it. You shouldn't have. Okay, you sinned. Shame is something that you believe that you are. So the reason why people get mixed up into shame is this. It's not that they've sinned. It's not that they're guilty or not guilty. It's this reality that they've sinned, they're guilty of it, and now they believe that they are the epitome of that sin. You didn't just mess up and do wrong. You are wrong. You, you, you didn't just mess up. You are a mess up. And this is how Satan keeps people. I watch it time and time and time again. I watch it keep people away from God. Why? They feel like they need to hide themselves, guard themselves out of their own toil and work, make something to, to be able to hide their shame and their guilt. Because, well, I don't know how God's going to react to this. Because I am that. And Satan will continually, he not only, like sometimes we think that he's like this, the horn and the red suit with the tail and the pitchfork, and all he does is just sit around trying to get you to, like tempt you to do something, tempt you to, I don't know, murder someone, tempt you to kill, tempt, tempt you to steal something, tempt you to, like tempt you to sin in whatever way. Here's, the, here's the, the really sneaky part, is that he gets you, he tempts you to sin, and then once you do it, he convinces you that you are the epitome of that sin. Like, you are a mess up. You didn't just mess up. Look what you did. That's who you are. And so it's very difficult for us to be, get freed from an identity. It's not just guilt. It's not just, ah, I, I, I screwed up. It's this, this is who I am now. Don't believe everything you think. We see this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. This is about Satan. He says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. And then he speaks about Satan. He says, For the accuser of our brethren, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Don't you realize that Satan loves to accuse you day and night. He distracts you during the day and keeps you up at night. Not with guilt. That's a reality. You screwed up. You did something. It's shame. It's the shame that, it, that, that, that keeps you locked up and overpowered. And he knows that if he can convince you that you are something that you're not, then you start sowing fig leaves, hiding, staying away from God. I don't want to go near him because I don't know what he's going to do. Which brings us to the third thing, fear. Fear. Genesis chapter, eight, chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, and I want you to imagine this. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Catch his answer. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Now, think about this. You are in the Garden of Eden. 
You're the only two people in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, I mean, you got all kinds of plants and animals, and it's just this amazing, beautiful, lush place, right? And you are in paradise with God. Think about how amazing and beautiful it must have been to hear God coming. Like as he's walking, I don't know what it sounded like. It says that they heard him coming, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I don't know if there was a swish. I don't know if he was sashaying through fields of lavender. Here's what I do know. It was pretty stinking cool, right? Here's what I know. It probably brought them all kinds of peace and comfort like yesterday. They're like, oh my gosh, he's coming. Do you hear him? Oh, he's almost here. He's getting closer. They're so excited that God is coming to commune with them, but not today. No, today all they hear is be, fi, fo, fum, right? All they hear is like boom, boom. They're like, ah! Run! Hi! Ah, 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 ah. They're just freaking out for no reason. Why? Same, same God, same place, same type of day, same sound. And that, now they're freaking out about it. Why? Because what I've realized is this, is that many times our perception of God is determined by our condition of our heart. Man, nothing's changed about God. He, he's just wanting to commune and be with the people that he created, and yet all of a sudden now their perception of God has completely changed based upon the condition of their own hearts. And this is, this is the scheme of the enemy, that he takes a sin which leads us, or he takes a lie which leads us to sin, which leads us to guilt, shame, and then fear. Time and time again, this thing plays out in so many of our lives. I watch, I watch it play out in our, in, in our lives. And it's so interesting that how we perceive him is, de, is dependent upon the condition, the condition of our own heart. So God was showing me this. And so I want you to understand the progression. We see it in Genesis chapter three. It starts out with a lie, which goes to shame, which turns into fear, right? And then I was, I was reading in, um, I mean, the, the cool thing is this, that like we have not been given a, a spirit of fear but of love, a power, love, and a sound mind or self-discipline. And, I was, and I, was, I was reading this. I was like, God just kind of put those two, those two scriptures together for me. And he was like, okay, so the, the progression of how Satan loves to attack us is this. Lies, shame, fear. But the progression of growth in God is power, love, and self-discipline. And God was like, put those two things together. So I started looking at it. I was like, he goes, how do you combat lies? With the power of God's word. That's how you combat lies. You don't combat lies being like, ah, you're a liar. I don't think so. That sounds kind of fishy. You combat lies with truth. You combat lies with the power of God's word in your life. And then it moves into shame. How do you combat shame? You combat shame with the love of God. You just realize that I am not who they say that I am. I am not the epitome of my past. I am not the, the, the shame of my sin. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And I may, not realize, I, I, I may not feel like it, but God's grace and his mercy and his love overrides the junk in my life. And then, he, then it goes to the end. H- how, do we, how do we battle fear? Through self-discipline. How do we battle fear? Through self-discipline. That's what I want to talk to you uh, th- this morning about and kind of like flesh this thing out because I think that it's, it's the key to some of us working through this area and this battlefield of our own mind that we would conquer fear through self-discipline. And it's different than you might think. 
So let's, let's go down through this. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the original scripture that we first started reading. I want you to notice something. Paul uses these like violent warlike terms. Just in these two verses. I'm going to like, I'll yell them out when I get to them so you'll know. He says, the weapons we fight with are not weapons. Look, I mean, this is just one sentence of the world. On the contrary, they had divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then catch this. He says, and we take captive prisoners of war every thought to make it obedient. You will be obedient, darn it, to Christ. So I want to run down through this really quick and give you three things as we battle through this, this battlefield of the mind, three things that Paul gives us to, to start walking in victory. The first one is this, take your thoughts captive. Take your thoughts captive. What are you talking about? Like, how am I, how am I supposed to do that? I looked, I looked it up in the Greek. This word take captive literally means to take hold of the attention of or to captivate. In other words, start thinking about what you're thinking about. Start thinking about what you're thinking about. This is so important for us to, to realize as Paul is just like hitting on this thing because the greatest lie of our generation is the same exact lie that Adam and Eve believed, which is this. Just because something seems good doesn't mean it is good. And when we start to walk in that reality, we start to realize that just because I think it doesn't mean I have to believe it. Do you realize this? That just because you think something doesn't mean it's going to blow your mind. It doesn't, you don't have to react to it. Did you, did you know that? There are things that people can say over you and have said over you and said over your life. There are things that you think about yourself. Maybe there are even things that Satan has just spoken over you, word curses that have been said over you even years and years and years ago. And when we take captive those thoughts, it's essentially saying, ah, no, 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 no. We wrestle that thing to the ground. And just because it looks good doesn't mean that it is good. Just because we think it doesn't mean that it's true. Don't believe everything you think. And we see it in Genesis chapter 3. It says, when the woman saw, catch this, she just sees, she looks at the, at the fruit. She says, when she saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. Like we have this natural bent, even from thousands of years ago, to think that just because we think or feel something, it must be good. I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'll talk to people like, well, you know, if you just, whatever you just feel, you should just, just be free. Just do it. Listen, you should thank the good Lord in heaven above that I do not do everything that I feel. I wouldn't be here. I'd be in jail. Most of you would too. It's this reality, like, what are you talking about? Well, I don't know. I just, something came from within me, and I just feel like I should do this or punch her. I just feel it. I'm just going to do it because I just, I need to let it out. Just let it go. Let it go. I just need to let it out because it's, it's who I am. I feel it. I sense it. You should stop it. Like, no, please. Just, I just need to let it out. No, keep it in. Please keep it in. Nobody needs that, right? 
but it's this, it's this fallacy that like, man, if I think it, it must be true. And, and, if I, and if I feel it, that must be who I am. When, when, when that's not true in any other area. And, and, and honestly, I, many times I have this own temptation in my own life. If I, if I think something or feel something, it must be good, but it's not. Why? Because I have a really keen ability to lie to myself. And my guess is that you do too. Listen, some of my greatest regrets in life were because I took my own advice. Come on. You thought, oh, you should really date him. He needs help. Not yours. Come on, girl. Right? You, you, thought, you thought, oh, I should, I should buy that. Uh, no, you shouldn't have. Right? There's this reality that, like, are you really the best person that you should be talking to about what you want to do? Because I've made some pretty crazy mistakes when all I do is listen to me. And so this idea that, like, man, if I think it, feel it, sense it, then I should just do it. Why? Because it came from within me and I should trust it. Please do not believe everything you think. And this is what Paul is talking about. Don't believe everything that you think. And he says this, take captive your thoughts. Because the reality is if you do not take captive your thoughts, then that thought can take captive of you. The thoughts that you do not take captive actually have you captive. And he's like, you need to start wrestling some thoughts to the ground. You need to start actually taking a look at what you're thinking. Start thinking about what you're thinking about. Because, and it's probably not new news to you. Why? Because 95% of your negative thoughts are repetitive. So you just probably got two, three, four, maybe five repetitive negative thoughts that you just kind of keep on on replay. This isn't like something that you don't know. You know it because you just said it this morning. You're saying it while I'm talking. You did it three weeks ago. You've been doing it for years. This reality that this, this same repetitive negative thought just keeps going over and over and over again, affecting how you think, what you believe, how you act, and the way you behave time and time and time again. So he says this, take captive your thoughts. And then the second thing is this, interrogate the thought. I like that word. Interrogate the thought. Anybody like watching like those FBI dramas? Like remember like when, when 24 was on? Or, I mean like my goodness, like it's, what I love about, about those specifically is when you bring a suspected terrorist into the interrogation room. It just, I'm getting sweaty just thinking about it. <sighs> so what they do is, and it's every single scene, it doesn't matter. You have a suspected terrorist, you bring them in, and, um, and so you, there's concrete walls, and there's a chair with a light over it, and a table, and some cigarettes. And you're like, well, I don't smoke. You might want to think about it, <laughs> right? Because you know what's going down. You see that, and you're like, oh, yeah. It means business. So what do they do? They bring you in. They kind of rough you up, throw you in the chair, and then they leave you. They just leave you. And you're like, what do they know? Why am I here? You got to beg for water. Like it lasts for sometimes hours, sometimes days. You're just like, somebody talk to me. You know what I mean? And, And there's this reality. And then they want to, they finally come in, and they got this manila folder, and they're looking at it, shaking their head, and looking at you, and all this stuff. And they got two questions. Two questions. The first one is, who sent you? And why were you sent? Who 
sent you? In other words, like, what, 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 uh, you know, what radical group sent you as a suspected terrorist? What, and why were you sent here? What was the plan? What were you, what were you going to be doing? What was this going to look like? Who sent you? Is, and and, and I, I honestly think that it would be, do us so much if we could start going FBI interrogation on our thought life. Hold up, who sent you? Is this from me? Is this from my uncle from, you know, 30 years ago? Is this, is this from Satan? Is this from, who, who sent you? Is this from God? And why were you sent? Were you sent so that I could start doubting God's word, that he isn't who he says that he is, that he won't do what he says that he would do? Why were you sent? What was the, what's the purpose of this lie that starts just eating away at me? Who sent you and, and, and why were you sent? I find that most people take better care of their computers than they do their own thought life. You got like antivirus, all kinds of like pop-up blockers. And look, I think we would do good to have a pop-up blocker on our minds. Right? Could you imagine? You'd be like, you're just walking around and be like, bloop. Right? And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I like my pop-up blocker. It'll show me like, you know, you got all these different ad websites that were blocked. You didn't even have to look at them. You're like, you got like 12. That's pretty awesome, right? Because all of a sudden you just walk around, bloop. Oh, no, 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 no. Shut up. Nope, 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 nope. You're not allowed here. Bloop. Nope, nope, nope. Again, you try it again. Nope. What if we walk through our life realizing that like, there are some things that I'm going to allow in. There are some things I'm just going to send. You know what? Oh, you thought that you could say that to me? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to, it's going to go back to sender. It doesn't go well with friends, but if you're like, ah, you could send that back to the pit of hell where it began, right? Friends don't necessarily take that well, but that's okay. It's this reality. There are some things that I'm going to receive and believe, and then there are some things that I'm just going to be like, you could send that right back where it was. I'm sorry, I don't take junk mail at this address. Oh, I'm sorry, that, you wanted to spam me? That goes into a different folder, sister, and it gets deleted every 30 days. Like, what if we started actually taking captive our thoughts, interrogating our thoughts, and saying, ah, nah, it's not happening. I'm actually, as, as that thing tries to pop up in my mind, in the, I'm actually putting that thing down, and I'm, not, I'm choosing to not believe everything that I think. Don't believe everything that you think. <laughs> and he continues, he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, we, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then he says this, catch it. He says, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient. Gotta make it obedient. What does that mean? I don't know about you, but I'm like, what does that mean? Just like stop it? You know, oh, I have this thought and it's negative thought. I'm just gonna make it obedient. Darn it, you can stop it. Cut it out, get rid of it. Here's the problem for me. When I try not to think about things, it gets worse. You ever been there? Where you're like, man, I, I try not to think about something, and all I'm thinking about is what I'm not trying to think about. Time and time again. I mean, this, this could play over. It doesn't matter what it is. All right, let me do something right here. Don't think about a pink elephant. Stop it. Don't think about a pink elephant. Think about something other than a pink elephant right now. It's hard, isn't it? You're like, I don't even care about pink elephants. Why am I thinking about pink elephant? I've never even seen a pink elephant before. All I'm thinking about is a pink elephant. Because when you try not to think about the thing that you're thinking about, you just keep thinking about the thing that you don't want to be thinking about that you're thinking about. 
just keeps playing over and over and over and over again. And so this is what I want to, I want to show you something that I didn't finish the sentence up there. It actually says make it obedient, but not just make it obedient. Not just say cut it out, just stop it, just quit. He says make it obedient to Christ. Make it obedient to Christ. And what I'll say is this. This is the key. That, those two words are the key to everything that we're talking about today. That the only way you change your thinking is to replace your thinking. You don't just kind of cut it out. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that. That's bad. Don't do that. He says, I'm going to make it obedient to Christ. And this is the key. We make our thoughts obedient to Christ, so we correct them and we replace them. And what I'll say is this. I think it's one of the, one of the hardest things that I see in the church of Christ today is that if we don't know the word of God, if we're not in the Bible, if we don't know God's word, then it's very difficult to replace the words of the enemy with God's word. And so we're sitting here going to counselors saying, I don't know why. I, I mean, my mom said this about me and this is how I feel and this is what my past tells me and this is where I'm at and this is what the, my truth is because this is what I've experienced and I'm trying not to think that and I'm trying not to look that way and I'm trying not to be this person. I'm trying not to act like this or believe that. But the reality is, is that the more you try not to think about it, you just keep thinking about it because God doesn't call you just to make it obedient. He says you've got to make it obedient to Christ, which means that you're not, you don't just change the way you think, you replace the way you think. And here's the, here's the reality. If those negative words that were spoken over you have that much power over you now, how much more powerful is the word of God if it was repeated over you? And when we don't get into the Word of God, when we don't know the Word of God, we can't correct anything. Because all we're going on is what I think, what I feel. It's just something that's in me, and I feel it, and just need to let it go. No. We don't just try to change and stop something. We need to replace our stinking thinking with God's way of thinking. He says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What if you got to the point in your life where people could tell you whatever they want, where, where, where your emotions could tell you whatever they want, where haters could tell you whatever they want, but you don't have to believe it. You actually don't have to believe everything that you think, everything that's said, everything that comes in, because I'm actually not listening to that. I'm listening to God and what he says over my life. Don't believe everything that you think. Why don't you stand with me? So my son, when he was uh, probably six years old, he was struggling with some homework one day and he's like in first grade, he was doing some, I, I believe it was math, which is, um, he was having a hard time with it. And he started saying some things. And if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about where they start to take their math homework that they're struggling with or whatever that homework is that they're struggling with and they start to say things about themselves, right? 
Like, I, I'm no good at this. I, I can't do this. I, I, I always screw it up. I, I'm not, I, 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 can't, I, I can't ever get anything right. These, these thoughts. And it's coming out of a six-year-old kid. And I was getting fed up with it. You know, I'm trying to like help him out. No, buddy, come on, you can do this. Come on, you can, oh no, I'll help you, I'll help you. Finally, I got so fed up with it. I looked at him and this is what I said to him. I said, don't you ever talk about my son that way. <laughs> and he goes. <laughs> like all of a sudden, he's like, what you, well, who are we talking about now, right? Six-year-old kid. I said, you look in my eyes. He's sitting there. <laughs> He looks up at me and I said, don't you ever talk about my son that way. That's not who my son is. I don't know who you're talking about. Can't do anything, screws everything up, shouldn't even try. My son is more than a conqueror. My son can do math homework. He might have to try. He might fail. He might need to work harder. That's okay. But that's not who my son is. So I would appreciate it if you wouldn't talk about my son that way. He just looked at me like, okay. Well, we won't do that then. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes wonder, like if we could pull back the, the curtain of heaven and, and you could hear just the audible voice of your father speaking to you. I wonder how many times as we're perseverating on, on the words that other people have spoken over us and the, and the words of, of our past and the things that we, that we think that we are and the shame that we carry, I wonder if we could hear him say, don't you talk about my son that way. Talk about my daughter like that. I don't know who you're talking about right now, but, 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 but my son and my daughter, they're children of the Most High King. They, they walk in victory. They're overcomers. Like, I understand that you might struggle in this area. I understand you might sin, but that is not who you are. And we get this idea that like, oh, if I sin, then that's who I am. And I just have to carry this shame and try to hide it and cover it up and wear a mask at church so that nobody finds out. Because if they found out, not only would God back away, but people would back away. And I just can't, I just can't deal with this. Listen, the only way we walk through this is to own our sin, to repent of it, and to begin walking in an opposite direction. And that only comes through the power of Christ in us. It only comes through Him. Because we all have an accuser. We all have the accuser of the brethren that loves to make us and tell us something that we are. When God says, don't talk about my son that way. And I love how he ends it in verse 6 in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, and we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. It, it's kind of weird because verse 4 and 5, he's all talking about like our thought life and just cut that stinking thinking, sir. You know, like just start, you know, if you could just change the way that you think and start thinking about what you're thinking about and stop believing everything that you think. All of a sudden now in verse six, he just starts connecting our thoughts and our actions together. And this is the sticky point. This is the sticky point of where we live as American Christians today. I'll be honest with you. It's what we talked about last week about the, about the kind of like the, 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 the demonic lullaby and, and, and needing to wake up. It's this reality that, that you have not just been freed 
so that your mind can start thinking that I'm good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You've actually been freed so that you can start walking out the call of God in your life. And when we stop short and short-circuit the work of God by thinking, oh man, now I just feel so much better because now I know who I am, and we think that that is the end goal, we have have short-circuited the work of God in our life. And we've settled for a form of spirituality that we call Christianity. Look, I don't mind people coming up with new religions, but just don't call it Christianity. Because the reality is God has freed you. You walk in victory, not so that you could just say, isn't this great? I get to go to heaven one day. Hallelujah. We get to now walk out the call of God over our life. He's got plans and purposes for you. And don't stop short for a good feeling of the presence of God because the presence of God is not an indicator of his approval. We're called to walk in obedience to the call of God in our life. That's, that's what we've called to do. And may we never short-circuit this feeling of the presence of God as the approval of God. So this is what I'd love to do as we, as we end in worship here today, this last worship song. Wherever you're at today, I just know, maybe even over the past couple weeks, God has been speaking to you about something that you just know that you know that you know that you're supposed to walk in obedience to. And I know that he's cutting off lies in your life. He's cutting off shame in your life. Right now, I, I, I believe, even as this word, the word of God goes forth, that, that, that shackles of shame are falling, falling down and that freedom is coming where only bondage was known. And God, I pray that even right now, freedom would come in relationships. Freedom would come uh, over addiction in someone's life right now. I pray that you would reign supreme in our life. And God, give us the courage to begin to walk out in obedience and repentance the call of God over our life. And may we not just settle for goosebumps and a feeling of God. You've called us to more than that, Jesus. And so God, I pray that even in this place, all within the, within the sound of my voice, God, I pray that your word would go forth and that it would not return void that we would be a church that walks out the love of Christ in us. God, give us the courage to have hard conversations, to break off that relationship if need be, to do whatever we need to do to be able to walk in, in the relationship with you, God. We thank you. We thank you that you tear down those strongholds that would like to hold us back. If you've got a prayer need in any area of your life today, I'd love an opportunity for, to, for you to not leave without being ministered to. So as we sing today, if you want to come up along the sides up here, a prayer need, maybe you've got a healing need in your area, maybe this message is just speaking right to you and you just like, I don't know what to do. I just want to encourage you to get out of your seat, make your way down, and just say, God, I don't know what surrender looks like, but I definitely know that I don't want more of what I've had, but I want more of what you have, Jesus. And so I surrender my life to you, God. Have your way, have your way, have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together, church.